I think a lot of times people assume that this one thing I'm doing right now is going to be the thing that I'm going to get discovered for. And so it has to be absolutely perfect. And I don't know that I believe that. I think that's what it comes down to is just sort of being like, what is it that I want more than anything else? And then really taking the steps to move it towards that. Then you're like, damn, soap is like soap making. Yeah, <laughs> This is such an amazing art form. Yeah, I love soap making. Um. <laughs> In this week's episode, I speak with David Moore. We discuss the topics of filmmaking, living life as an artist, money in the world of art, and more. I had an excellent time speaking with David, and I hope you enjoy listening to our conversation just as much. We'll hop right into our conversation just after this. You're listening to the Uniquely Eugene podcast, a show dedicated to highlighting the unique stories, ideas, and perspectives of the people living right here in our community of Eugene, Oregon. Here's your host, Anthony Che. Our guest for the week is David Mort. David is a prevalent member of the local film community, co-owner of Kingsight Studios, and a true artist at heart. We met up at a local park on a hot summer day to record this episode, so please forgive any excessive ambient noise that may have bled through to the final recording. But hey, you can take it as an opportunity to join us and immerse yourself in the same environment. Imagine the sounds of summertime, skateboarders or bikers riding past you, cicadas buzzing in the leafy trees, or an ice cold slurpee. Alright, enough of that. David told me a bit about his story growing up and discovering his passion for art. His love for art stemmed from drawing, later, theater. Eventually, he became enthralled with storytelling and found voice-making films. There were many components to his journey, so we'll take a few steps back to the start of it. So I was an only kid. Like, I didn't have any siblings. My, my mom uh, had me, and then it was a really awful experience for her, and the doctor was like, look, if you have another kid, you probably will die. Um, so I didn't have any siblings. And so I grew up kind of in a world... Um, I'm, despite the amount of talking that I do in front of groups of people in my personal life, I'm relatively introverted. Um, and so I didn't, I didn't go out and play a ton with the kids in my neighborhood. I spent a lot of my youth kind of in my own little world, creating stories with my toys and, and a drawing. I was curious if David had always aspired to pursue art as a career. So I asked him to describe his experiences growing up and his evolution through artistic mediums. Like I'm very, I'm very like um, adverse to to showing people or to to doing something I'm not good at. Like that's just part of who I am. Like if I don't think I'm good at it or I don't think others think I'm good at it, I have a tendency to not not pursue it. So I did a drawing when I was like seven or eight years old, and I think my dad was like, "That's really good," you know. And I was like, "Oh," and so um, I can get that praise I so badly desire. Um, so I started doing more and more drawing, and probably until I was fifteen or sixteen years old. Um, I wanted to be a, a an artist, a painter, um, and and then there was this girl I really liked, and she was auditioning for the high school musical, and I was like, oh, I can I can sing, okay, maybe I'll go audition, and then she'll see how cool and sensitive I am, and she'll go out with me, and um, I got cast in the musical, and she didn't, <laughs> and I mean for me it, it worked out really great because at that point I realized that I had an ability to sort of emotionally connect to myself and and take other people's words and sort of fill that emotion that with emotion and communicate and so uh it started a lifelong passion for storytelling as a as a storyteller 
David's spark for storytelling was ignited, and as he continued, he told me more about his inspirations for sharing stories. A particular moment I found noteworthy was an experience that he shared regarding an obstacle in his life. I grew up, so um, I have a, a neurological disability. Uh, and, and when I was a little kid, it was misdiagnosed as a form of cerebral palsy. And um, I had a lot, of, a lot of surgeries and a lot of physical therapy. And my youth was very, uh, was spent with a lot of, uh, in a lot of leg braces and, and uh, crutches and all kinds of stuff. To at 19 then find out that that was really not what I had. It was a neurological disability and, and it was a progressive disability. Um, but I spent a lot of time as a kid feeling very outside because I didn't, I couldn't walk um, like everybody else did and, and I had these like leg gear on and I just spent a lot of my youth feeling very unaccepted and for better, you know, I've, I was diagnosed, I was re-diagnosed at 19 with, with this neurological disorder and then at 28, or I'm sorry, at 30, found out that my oldest child had it as well. And in the like 10, 11 years since I had been diagnosed with it, they found that it was a genetic disorder and it was passed from parent to child. And, um, and so seeing the way kids responded to my daughter as she was going through those things um, was, was really heartening. Like, like it felt really good because I grew up with a lot of people kind of making fun of me and, and kind of, you know, just not being nice to my daughter's experience has been that her class is super supportive and protective of her. And in, in not in like a coddling way, but like a, no, you're awesome. We love you. We don't, we don't care that you walk differently or that you wear leg braces. Like it's awesome. So I'm, yeah. I'm hopeful that societally we're making a shift in there. Through the amalgamation of his experiences, David found specific themes that he's most passionate about and has incorporated them into his various projects and work. Over the last four or five years, I've gotten more into directing film. And I've discovered that there are certain themes that I'm like incredibly passionate about as an artist, yeah? Yeah. And and when I, when I direct something, um, I am looking to put those themes into my stories and so I may f I found that over the four or five years uh, like family and and um, a sense of belonging is important to me and what happens when that sense of belonging and family is gone is something that's really important to me as an artist and so you know as I as I think about movies I want to direct and I'm interested in now versus four years ago, it's a different story. One of the first films we shot here in Eugene as part of this community that I exist in now was a, was a short film called Wounds, New and Old, and it was a 1940s noir film. Um, yeah, and, and you know we worked really hard to try, to try to create something that was incredibly authentic to that 1940s era. And the thing I found in that story was what compelled me the most was sort of these two characters, um, without giving away the story, the main plot of the story is a murder has, uh, a woman's husband has died and the police have ruled that it was a suicide and the, the woman doesn't believe that's the case. And so she hires a private investigator and the private investigator comes back with the same answer. And the story takes place the night after he tells her that no, it was, it was a suicide. And she comes to her, his office with a gun and she demands that he uh, review the case and tell her how he came to the solution because it clearly doesn't make sense that it was suicide. Um, 
my wife wrote that and I thought it was super brilliant because you go, I have to do an entire whodunit in about 15 minutes. How do we do that? Well, we already did the whodunit. Let's talk about the aftermath of it. Um, but as we were kind of going through that story, the things that to me were the most interesting was this thing that wasn't actually in the script, which was the, the detective Logan, the actor Will Brack, who played him, wanted to wanted him to be a returning World War II vet. And as we looked at it from that standpoint, there is there is so much that is happening to our soldiers and has happened to our soldiers uh, returning from war as long as there has been soldiers and there have been war and, and sort of the conversation around PTSD and feeling like you don't belong somewhere and trying to find your place coming back from these horrific things were the things that were the most interesting and I think to me just they're... They're not large beats in the story, but in the opening, we see a picture of our hero uh, in, I think it's in the, the picture is from Normandy, uh, France, a group of soldiers together, and there's a pair of dog tags on it. We see that he's got a purple heart. Yeah. Uh, he plays with army mans with this little kid. You know, it's, that's what, oh, yeah. yeah, there's okay. all these little things that we build into the script that's not necessarily there, but it, it tells the story of, of something, someone feeling like they don't belong in the world they do. And then, you know, kind of, on the opposite side of that, uh, the character of Sandra, uh, which is played by she's played by a woman named Chelsea Real, who's a phenomenal actor, and the same sense that this this very strong, smart, intelligent woman who is living in a, in a point in American history where sm- strong, smart women are not allowed to be a thing, um, and so sort of what does that do to her as a person? And and so those were the things that like stood out to me as a storyteller, and then. Uh, the project working on right now, Gates of Avalor, is again the story of people who are sort of misfits and feel outside coming together to cause something greater than themselves. What's the setting of the film? It's a fantasy film. Okay. So it, it is set in, uh, you know, any of your typical like D&D, think of D&D world, yes. and that's what we've got. So uh-huh. uh, the story focuses around these four individuals, a, a human ranger, and it's even D&D, even D&D, like... Classes. You have a human ranger, an elven sorceress, a human fighter, and a halfling thief. And they are kind of charged with going in and stopping this undead army from completely taking out um, a kingdom. And, you know, the the story is, is that these four people are all incredibly damaged by the world and the lives that they've lived. But them coming together is something greater than themselves. And so... Again, it's that same idea of outsiders living somewhere and trying to find their place and how they fit into it. And I, I've discovered that over the you know the 40 years that I've lived, that I have I have often felt like I didn't fit into wherever I was in that particular moment, and sort of trying to find a place uh, to feel like I'm a part of of something uh, has been an important thing for me. And and it took it took that long for me to realize that that was something I felt. Um, but as an artist, that's what I want to talk about. Another project David mentioned that caught my attention was a concept he described as ordinary people's most impactful moments, which he aspires to translate into a short film anthology. Here's the inspiration for that project. Yeah, so, you know, this whole idea started, my father-in-law and I were having a conversation. He lives out on a farm, and a lot of times he'll call me over to help him do a project. And he and I were working on this project together, and... My, my, my wife's family is Canadian. They moved here in the 90s and then became citizens. But my father-in-law was in the Canadian uh, Armed Services. He kind of actually every branch he worked in. And he was telling me about when he was in the Air Force, he actually survived two airplane crashes. And he saved two people's lives. 
in, in one of the crashes. And he was talking about kind of this profound impact that it had on him and sort of his view of his own mortality and what his responsibilities to, to others were. And I thought this was this really kind of amazing story. And outside of a handful of people, no one would ever know it because my father-in-law is not famous. Mm-hmm. And so as I started to kind of think about that idea, I thought about all these other amazing stories and, and things that have impacted me in my life. And I have outlets to share those things and those feelings, but there'll be a really limited number of people even still that will ever hear those stories again, because I'm not, I'm not someone who's famous or noteworthy. So the idea came up to find a way to tell a handful of stories of everyday people. And so exactly kind of what you're doing. (laughs) Um, We want to find a handful of people to talk about the most impactful moment in their lives and then take that story, kind of similar to this, which is an interview process, to take that story and form it into a, a script that's anywhere from, I was going to say short script, and then script came out, and that sounds funny the way I said it. Um, form it into a short film, record it with all local artists, and then do an anthology of 10 to 15 of those stories. And find a way to help spread these really amazing stories of individuals with that maybe wouldn't be told otherwise. Another captivating detail I forgot to mention is David's ability in puppet crafting. He described to me what he admires about the artistic expression that he's been able to convey through puppetry, which I found surprisingly compelling. I had a stint working as a puppet builder, and um, and then kind of, I love puppets because they kind of combine both of those. Like, I get to sit in a studio and design this creature and then build it and then I can make it say whatever I want. <laughs> and uh, there's a certain amount of funness in that. So I think, Definitely. yeah, it's just, it's sort of shifted and shaped over time. But, but I think as I've gotten older, I'm less concerned with the media with which I tell the story and more concerned conveying the emotion of what it is, I, what it is I'm thinking about at that moment. An interesting but relevant tangent David and I found ourselves on during our conversation was personal finance, specifically in relation to being an artist. David and I found ourselves in agreement regarding the importance that financial literacy plays both in the world of art and broader society in general. I think that's the other thing too is I got to go to a really amazing school for for acting. Like I was very, very fortunate and then I got an amazing education as an artist, but I did not get an education in how to be a business person. Yeah, the, the number of, of people who never became full-time actors that I know is staggering and it had nothing to do with their their talent or their willingness to audition or anything it was the simple fact that no one taught them how to manage their finances to be an actor so for example um, I love Shakespeare that is my my favorite thing in the world like I love a really well done Shakespeare production and that was my passion but the reality of it is, is as an actor, you cannot make a living being a Shakespeare actor, right? You make a living as an actor by doing commercials, by doing um, musicals, by going on tours, because that's where all of your revenue exists. And so I was really fortunate in that I had a mentor early on who was a few years older than me that said, hey, for every passion project you have, you have to have two other projects that will pay the ability for you to do that passion project. And... And that's what happens, right? Like we don't understand that, that a lot of times artists, I think, have a tendency to go, oh, money's evil, money's awful, money's the root of all that's bad, and I can't be an artist because I don't have enough money. Yeah. 
in an extent, yes, I can, I could argue that they, I understand where they're coming from, but at the same time, you're that you're in that position because, because no one has said, Hey, this is how you manage your finances. I mean, even in, even before college, you know, I, I, I love that I learned calculus in high school. I have never used that in my real adult life. Really anything back past, you know, algebra is not something I do normally, but I deal with my finances every day. I have to balance my budget every day. That doesn't exist in in public schools today. David is particularly passionate about this topic due to the amount of relevance that it plays in his life. His occupation for when he's not making puppets, acting, or creating films is as a financial consultant for nonprofits, often in the healthcare industry. David drew a very interesting comparison between the nonprofits that he works with and the artists that he's observed, linked in their philosophy around money. Money is really required to do a lot of things. Yeah, definitely. And it, also, it keeps us from being able to do the things we want to do. Mm-hmm. Like, so for example, I have a day job that I, I'm very passionate about. I, I feel like literally every day I go to work, I help save lives. Um, but it is not my it is not what I want to do with my days, right? I want to be a full-time uh, creator, whether it's video and film, or I love to make props, I 3D print, I, um, I have a background in, in special effects makeup design, like all of those things that get me really excited and are what I want to do for a living. Unfortunately, um, I have yet to find a way to financially afford to make that my day in and day out living. So I have to have a day job um, that allows me to do those things when I, when I have free time. So what I do, is I was, I was fortunate enough to be an actor um, through most of my 20s, and then my wife and I wanted to have kids. And the thing that was super important for me was that I was present in my kid's life. Um, my dad was a great, is a great guy, but was not around a lot when I was little, and that was something I didn't want to do with my kids. So I left acting at about 28 years old when my wife uh, got pregnant with our first child, and then I started working in business and started studying um, a methodology of business called, um, um, it's called Lean here in the States. Um, it's based on work that was done by the Toyota manufacturing process. And it's uh, this idea that uh, there are two staples within business that must exist at all times, which is continuous improvement and respect for others. And it became very popular in healthcare, oddly enough, in the late 90s. And so I started working in uh, project management uh, in Chicago in healthcare. And then we moved to Oregon and I worked in the arts for a while and then shifted in. My last job was for a company. I was a director of, um, I don't remember what my title was, but essentially I was in charge of process improvement for the the financial institution and as well as our clients who were largely healthcare based. Um, So today, I work, my, my day gig is as a consultant. Um, I work with nonprofits and help them streamline their business processes and help them f- be financially successful, essentially. So, because again, similarly, similarly to artists, you know, nonprofits are started by people who care deeply about their, their cause. In the particular case that I work in is in healthcare. So I work with uh, nonprofits that deal largely with uh, underserved populations of, of Oregonian citizens. Um, both mentally and physical health, mental and physical health predominantly. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're, they're people who are, they're doctors and they're psychiatrists and therapists that care deeply about their community, but they're not business people. And then I think in a lot of ways, working in the medical profession 
teaches you to not be a business person. It, it's almost in some ways, and same with, with an artist. It, like, it makes you think in the exact opposite way you have to think as a business person. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, my day job is, is helping uh, businesses, like I said, predominantly in the healthcare, serving underserved communities, for them to make strong business decisions and be able to grow as an organization. <laughs> Our society, though, teaches us that we have to sort of be nice and we have to think about other people more. And, and that is 100% true. But I would argue that as a business person, you have to think, what is my mission as a business individual? And how do I achieve that? And, and what means do I need to take to do that? Now, you don't have to mean and awful to do that. But what is my mission? What is my vision? What is my value? And anything that steers you away from that is not what you should be spending your time on. When we come back, David provides highly valuable advice on the topics of attaining funding as an artist, how you can create projects before you obtain any money, and his tips around writing focused grant proposals. Oregon especially has a lot of grants that are designed to help artists. All that and more coming up right after this. A central philosophy of the show is to use this podcast as a platform to connect and bring together individuals in our community. If you have community events or promotions you feel passionate to share, you can send an email to anthony at uniquelystudios.com. That's A-N-T-H-E-N-Y at uniquelystudios.com. I'll do my very best to deliver your message to the community as well as I can. Now, back to the show. Before the break, David told us about his life, his professional project, and the themes that have gone into them. In this portion of our conversation, David enlightened me with his advice around creating art through utilizing community resources, honing one's craft before seeking large funding, and what to do once you're ready to take that step. Yeah, I, th- I think there's a couple of things. So, number one, uh, we are I, one of the things I've learned over time is that if you just start your projects, often there will be other people who believe in you and they will kind of come in, in to help help you with that project one way or the other. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of times what happens is people use, I don't have the resources necessary to make the thing as a reason to not do it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and I, I'm really guilty of that. I, my background was as a, as a sole artist. So I, I, I painted for a long time and then, um, professionally I became an actor and there was always something there that was footing the bill for me being an actor. Right. Mm-hmm. It was a, it was a, film set that they had procured production money for or it was a theater that had a budget to pay me and as I kind of moved out on my own to create art on my own that funding piece was always a real scary thing how do I get the money because I you know I I can't afford a $5,000 camera I can't afford x y and z and definitely yeah and so for me the way that the way that has happened is one of a couple of ways number one I reach out to the community as a as a whole, not necessarily for financial backing, but for for backing in other areas. So, for example, in Eugene, we are on our right now. We're in pre-production, so I have a small production company um, called Kingsight Studios, and we are in pre-production on our fourth short film. We have a, a plan to do a feature-length film next year, towards the end of next year. Feature-length. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, we have a 
full script. That is that what you said in. you're in pre-production for right now? No, this is um, this is we're just writing the script for that right now. So technically, yes, we are in pre-production, but um, we're in a closer to filming on another short project called Limitless Man. Um, but those projects have all been done relatively inexpensively, and the way we've managed to do that is by reaching out to our community as a whole, and we have some really amazing cinematographers in our community. We have folks who have equipment at their disposal that is pretty much at what is considered professional level now. So there are people out there who have the equipment and the know-how to, to help you bring your story to life. So that was the number one thing, is just look at your community and see what your resources are. And then number two, I think a lot of times people assume that this one thing I'm doing right now is gonna be the thing that I'm going to get discovered for. And so it has to be absolutely perfect. And I don't know that I believe that. I mean, as an actor, I went on hundreds of auditions before I got my first professional acting job. Um, I shoot a YouTube show. It's been a little difficult to do it now because of the pandemic, but we shoot a, you know, anywhere from six to 15 minute episode of a silly puppet show every week. And we have almost 300 videos up on YouTube. And that process has taught me that if I wait to be really good at something or to have the exact thing I need to do it, I will never do it. And so one of the first things I tell people if they wanna make a movie and they're worried about the money piece is if there's a project that you are incredibly passionate and care about, don't make that one. Make the other ones that you're not as passionate about. And that way, figure out what you need to do, figure out what your resources are, and then, uh, then you can actually go and try to secure money if, if you want to because you have several projects that are done now well, and the other thing, too, is that when there's money on the line, everything becomes so much more stressful. Mm -hmm. So when I'm working on a project for free, and I have a group that we're working on this project for free, we do it because we love to do it. And I don't have anybody breathing down my neck. But the minute I have a project where there is a producer involved that has money um, or I'm renting by the hour to do something, it is a very different experience. It's not a bad experience, but it's way more stressful. And so... I would recommend that if, if you're trying to get into filmmaking and you're worried about the funding piece, make a couple other ones because anytime any sort of stressor gets involved, it becomes infinitely harder to do it. Mm -hmm. And so if you're not 100% confident that your script is where it should be or that you're, as a director or as a cinematographer, whatever role you're trying to play, you're not 100% confident in your abilities at that point, if we factor in the fact that somebody now has given you money and you're somewhat beholden to create something that they deem as quality, makes it way harder. David has made a great point that it's wise to work towards strengthening one's skills to build confidence as a creator and a strong portfolio before seeking funding. But what do you do when you've gotten to that point? But then, you know, kind of to answer that other question, which I think is probably the one that more people are interested in the answer of, which is how do you secure funding, right? Like, okay, great, David, tell me to make my movie and don't, but, but really, how do I get the money? I mean, I think there's a couple of ways to do it. I, I spent time as a fundraiser. So I, I worked for um, a theater company and we raised like $3.5 million to build a new theater. Wow. And we did it right in the middle of the recession in 2000, from 2009 to 2012 is when we did it. And the, um, yeah. If I can interrupt you yeah, for go just ahead. a second. Um, you raised $3.5 million over what period of time? Um, well, so I think we really did the main fundraising in about a year, it was about 12, 12 to 16 months. And were there we uh, commercial uh, donations or it was grassroots type with like lots of individuals putting forth kind small? Of a, 
kind of yeah, kind of a combination. So we we had several grants that were significant in dollars. Uh, we had um, a lot of grassroots individual donors. You know, when you're fundraising, kind of the rule of thumb is about 80% of your funds are going to come from about 12 people. Um, that's really what it comes down to. And so what you have to do is you have to be really strategic about, number one, is this something I'm willing to, to ask somebody for a large amount of money for? And if at any point in time you go, no, this is not something I'm willing to ask somebody for a large amount of money for, then you should not ask them for a large amount of money amount of money. So, so number one, you have to be really clear about that. Am I willing to, to ask somebody for a lot of money? Number two, do I, do I know individuals that could help me with that? Because the other piece of it too, is a lot of times nobody wants to be the first one to give you the money, right? So if you're trying to raise a hundred thousand dollars to do something, whatever that is, nobody wants to give you that first dollar. But if you, if you are able to go to friends and family and say, Hey, this is something I'm very passionate about. It's something I really want to do and they're able to help you, that gives you a little bit of credibility if you were to walk in and ask for a commercial loan or you were to go to somebody, a business or a, a charitable organization or a granting organization and ask for funds. If they see that you have money already, that's really helpful. And so starting off, understanding kind of where does that, where do those 12 individuals land to get me my 80% of my funds that I need? Definitely, yeah. yeah. And then the other piece too that I think a lot of artists really don't realize is Oregon especially has a lot of grants that are designed to help artists. Really? Uh, oh, yeah. Um, these, the, um, oh gosh, what are there? Uh, well, in locally, there's the Lane Arts Council that gives grants to artists of, of up to $5,000. Wow. Um, depending on their projects. There's the Oregon Arts Council, which gives much larger grants. I think they did two fellowship grants this past year that were $100,000 each. For artists to create art over the Jeez, course of the year, a hundred thousand. That was the amount. Yeah, it may have been this year or the year before. It may have is been twenty nineteen. For um, I'm curious. Uh, do you mean for like professional artists or yeah, professional artists? Well, I, you know, I guess, and to me, that quite like that's kind of a hard question. I understand, right? <laughs> for sure. Like, well, what is professional? Yeah. Um, but yeah, so so someone that they deemed that those funds would be put to good use, and that that individual could spend a year not only having enough material and supplies to create art, but then the time necessary to be an artist. Mm -hmm. And so more than likely that tends to go to people who have been doing it a while longer and have a portfolio. Definitely. Because it's a lot of money to just put somebody's <laughs> Yeah, put in somebody's, somebody's hand. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. And, and the other piece of it too, the thing that's also important to understand with grants is a lot of times grantors are going to want proof that that those funds were used appropriately yeah. or they may ask for them back so you know, that's the other piece oh, that's a nightmare <laughs> right um is understanding what that grant is for understanding that there are options for grants and then understanding kind of what the what the expectation is for you as an artist to be able to manage and show them that hey these funds were used the way they ought to be David went in-depth with providing information related to finding the right grant for your project as well as with the specific points to make when writing a proposal Sure. Well, I think the first thing you have to do is really have a strong idea of what you want the funds for. And, and when I say strong idea, I don't just mean I want to make a movie, right? What you want to do is you want to go, why do I want to make this movie? What story do I want to tell? And this is actually what I'd recommend for somebody who wants to make a movie too, not just for the funding, but, but the point of making a film is, what is the story I want to tell and why does it need to be told? And then when you figure that out, then you start a series of 
of kind of what if games in your head, right? Which is, okay, so this is a story I tell, I want to tell, and this is why I want to tell it. What are the things that will stop me from telling that story? And then the next thing to do is be really specific about your search for grants. So one of the things I... Um, are you talking about niches specifically? Okay. Yeah. Because what happens is a lot of times people will go, okay, I need money. They'll do a Google search, grants for artists, right? And the list of grants will pop up or some form of grants will pop up. And then they'll narrow that down to granters for artists in Oregon, wherever. And then that brings some options up, right? And so then they go and they click on the first one and they're like grants from twenty five to $200,000 for artists trying to make a film. And that's it. And they click on it. And then the grant gives the description of what the money is for and why the money is being used. And then they, they spend two or three days writing a narrative and then they submit it. And the, you know, the, the grant is designed to be represent. Okay. So for example, uh, you know, I am, uh, um, a storyteller and I want to talk about the homeless population in Oregon and race and gender do not play Race, gender, and or sexual orientation does not really play a part of my script, um, but it is part of the story, right? And so I start looking, and there is a there is a grant that says we're looking to fund uh, people talking about the African American experience in Oregon, and and so then they apply for that grant, and they go well because the street youth and and there are there are African American youth in Eugene that are homeless, so hey, I should be a part of that, and they spend you know, a day or two writing all these questions, they probably are not going to get funded. Um, so as you look for granting opportunities, look for grants that specifically speak to what you're doing. Yeah. So if it is about the homeless youth in Oregon, look for grants that are really aligned with that. You may find that there are grants designed specifically to help spread awareness about the homeless population in Oregon. Those are the grants you need to be going after. Because you don't want to spend, you know, some of these grants, I've written grants that take weeks to write because they're so intricate and they're so finite in detail. You don't want to spend, you know, 40 hours writing a grant that, that the grantor looks at it and goes, this has nothing to do with what I'm granting for and throws it away. Yeah. It's just, it's real bad. So that's like the first thing is be really specific about what it is you're trying to sell and then look for opportunities. You would be better off to go after a grant that was like half of the value, but is specific to your topic than to go for a broader grant. Absolutely. To have the competitive advantage for what you're trying to do. Definitely. Yeah. And then really spend time. I am, I am not a good writer. Like I, I am terrible at writing my, I am very fortunate in that my, my spouse is an incredibly gifted author. She writes scripts. I have an amazing, I mean, we are partners in every sense. Like we create art together and, and all of that good stuff. But Spend time crafting a really good narrative. If you are like me and you are not a good writer, find somebody who is and ask for their help. Because it doesn't matter how passionate or excited you are about your story, if you can't convince others that it's worth telling, they're never going to tell it. So spend time writing a narrative that's really compelling. And then also, back to that financial piece, right? Be really clear about what these funds will be used for. So... If it is used for renting camera equipment, look for that. Talk about that. Um, If it's designed to be uh, for paying actors, talk about that. 
Because at the end of the day, a lot of times granting organizations we talked about are going to come back and ask you how those monies were used. And so being upfront about that in the front end is also good. Because again, there may be grants that exist specifically to buy film equipment. Um, I know one of the grants we're looking at right now. So, for example, on that anthology project mm-hmm. we're just starting on right now. And is that with your company? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, with Kingsight Studios. Uh, one of the things we're looking at right now is are there granting opportunities to buy high-end cameras? Because to rent them, we're, we're looking at probably between fifteen dollars and $20,000 in expense just to rent a camera yeah. to film it. Well, most of the cameras that are considered professional grade these days that are not like top-end $60,000, $70,000 cameras mm-hmm. are in the fifteen dollars to $20,000 price range. And so we're looking for grants specifically around purchase of camera equipment. And so, you know, also looking at those diff- Again, just being very specific about what you're looking for. And the other thing, too, is call people. Like... Um, if you look at the Oregon um, Arts Council, there is a representative down here in Lane County. I can't, I can't think of her name right now. He's Stephanie. But, but there's a number, a local number. Call that number and talk to them about what you're trying to do. And, you know, grantors want to give away money. They want to help artists tell their story. Mm-hmm. And so talk to them. Find out what it is, what, that, what's out there and what's available. Definitely. Like, I'm sure it'd be helpful to gain insight into the ears that you're trying to appeal to. Yeah. And it and like I think a lot of times people feel like it's a sort of secretive thing, right? Like you go like, hey, can I have some money? Uh-huh. And it's not. It really is. It is. And again, this is like a business transaction, right? Like you just call them and you go, okay, this is what I'm trying to do. What what sort of funding is out there that you're aware of, either with your organization or others that might help me? Mm-hmm. And they're great. They're like, let's help you. Um, that doesn't mean they're going to give you the money, but but they'll connect you to the resource in some kind exactly, of way, exactly monetary, like or like community wise yeah definitely so those are I think my big advice for grants is just be really specific and and knowledgeable in what it is you're trying to accomplish and then and then who you're going to the money for and asking the right parties and then on top of that just have a really strong narrative about why you want to tell this story Stay tuned for the final portion of our interview where David concludes with how he's persevered throughout his journey as an artist and leaves us with his final message as well as a peculiar story about one anonymous the troll. We'll be right back just after this. Don't go anywhere. Next week, I interview another impactful individual in our community. Hello, my name is Barbara Marbury. I am the Bridge Programs Coordinator in the Center for Multicultural Academic Excellence, which is a department in the Division of Equity and Inclusion on the University of Oregon campus. She describes her story of working both as an international flight attendant as well as a tutor teaching language. I have actually been asked by people from several countries, why do Americans insist on being you know, African American or Latin American or Asian American? And I have to tell them it's because in the United States we were not given the privilege of just being American. Um, we've always been divided out um, and made, and you know, and in some part of our history, is especially for black people and other people, we were not considered to be a full American, um, a full human being, let alone a full American. Our insightful conversation is one that you won't want to miss. Tune in next week for my conversation with Miss Barbara Marbury on the Uniquely Eugene podcast. On the topic of perseverance. David describes his philosophy of maintaining his spark as an artist and sticking it out to share his art no matter the obstacles that stand in his way. 
I'm going to go a little out in left field on this one, so you're going to have to stay with me for a minute. But right. I think I'll get you where you need to be. Let's hear it. So I do this on-again, off-again interview series where I meet with independent filmmakers and I watch their independent film and then we sit and we talk about their independent film. And it always goes up on YouTube and there will be a varying degree of experience the filmmaker has, quality of the film being produced, quality of the story, like all of those things. And then it goes on to YouTube. And and then you go and you back and you watch it a few months later and sometimes there are a thousand views and sometimes there's 25 views and sometimes, you know, there's a million views. And I think things like YouTube are both a blessing and a curse when it comes to being a creative individual because it's great because it gets the opportunity for people to see things that you would never see. And it, it gives me an opportunity to make a film that then can go out and be seen by a large community. But at the same time, when I make a goofy YouTube ch uh, puppet show and I list it as comedy, it's going to go up against Conan O'Brien. It's going to go up against Howard Stern. Um, it's going to go against The Tonight Show because uh, Comedy Central, because all of those all of those things have sitcom comedy in the descriptive tag. And so what happens is um, if I don't hit my algorithm just right, I get 25 views. And that's discouraging to me as an artist. The reason I tell this whole story is because having done this talk show where I talk to artists about their story and I talk to uh, individuals about why they made their movie, I've stopped caring about production value. I've stopped caring about how good the acting is. I've stopped caring about a lot of elements when I look at it as a film because, number one, this story is being told from the heart of an individual and they want to tell this story for whatever reason they want to tell the story. And so I, I would tell artists that if, it's kind of a twofold thing, if you're making movies or you're painting or you're writing or any of those things because you want recognition, you should stop doing that because you may never reach recognition and, and that art form that you have chosen will become frustrating and upsetting to you. Um, but if you create because you have to, because you love the craft of it, then you will never stop caring about the craft and you'll never stop finding opportunities to create it. Even in things like filmmaking or acting or music, we haven't even talked about music, uh, that's a huge other topic, right? Um, those are group activities. And sometimes you go, well, how am I going to be an actor if I can't get cast in a movie? Put your phone, you know, vertically, right? Yeah. And hit record and record a monologue. Um, and just keep doing it. And if nobody sees it, it doesn't matter. What matters is that you're creating the art that you want to create and telling your story. And I think for me, I stopped as an artist a long time ago being concerned about how many people did I reach? And I stopped being concerned a long time ago about um, what somebody on the internet who has never tried to do what I'm doing has to say about the quality of my, my art because I don't do that for them. I do it for myself. I do it for uh, the people who have been in a place in their lives where they have felt 
hopeless and lost, or they have felt like they don't have someone who hears them. Um, that's why I do my art. And there is a group of people, no matter how big or how small it is, that that, that resonates with. And those are the people that I create for, for. I create for myself. And so if I have any advice, it would be just sort of create art for yourself. And if there's an audience, that's awesome. But that shouldn't be the gauge of how good you are as an artist. Because I think if we were to look at, say, somebody like Martin Scorsese um, or Francis Ford Coppola, right, or any of these, like, great film directors, if they put their first films on YouTube, they may not be filmmakers today. Uh, because somebody would have said something terrible to them and that would have hurt them and they would have stopped being an artist. And then we would never have things like 2001 The Space Odyssey or the first Godfather film or any number of brilliant movies that exist out there um, because because there is always somebody who is not artistically inclined to tear you down. And so I think what we have to do as artists is try to choose a filter and hear things that are valid and disregard everything else. So I, the advice I would give to any artist to not get, to not get frustrated or upset or to give up on their art is to to remember why they create the art. And if the art if the art is being created to make money or to get noticed and fame, I mean maybe maybe think about something else. But if it's because I because I love this thing and I have to tell this story or I have to paint this picture or I have to play this song. Um, just do it and don't worry about whether anybody's there to listen. If you're happy, that's what matters. All right. That's an amazing answer. Thank you. <laughs> and, um, and, you know, you know and one thing I wanted to add to that, like sometimes passion is contagious. Yeah. Like, like, you, like somebody can be talking about like making soap. Yep. But if they can, if they can articulate it in a way that's like, you know, like you can see the passion and it's tangible in front of you, then you're like, damn, soap is like, Oh, so soap making, yeah. <laughs> this is such an amazing art form. Yeah, I love soap making. Um, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, totally. No, no I'm right there with you. Yeah, but I don't know. Like, I think when you, when you encounter people who are so passionate, like I, I think for an example that I, I can pull is like um, teachers who are like extremely passionate about their subject. Like somebody could be teaching like, I mean, I think this one is is like a little bit more interesting than than like like you said calculus. Yeah. Um, but I had this teacher in high school who was like so incredibly passionate about biology and he was like just like out the gates with it and he was trying like he had this passion for education and and, and this is his field and it, it really just brought everybody in so if you can apply that to like your art and and like people see how passionate you are about it they see the work that's going into it i think they'll follow yeah no i agree 100 percent david leaves us with his final message which is a call to action for all creators in our community also, he graciously states that what he aspires to see is the diversification of the industry and looks forward to the vast representation that will be exhibited in the stories to come. I think the most important thing that I want to walk away from this conversation, making sure that I say, is that if you have a story to tell, tell it. Don't, don't say, oh, I'm not good enough at putting a camera down and, and positioning it, or I'm not good enough to sit down and write dialogue. Just tell the story and, and then tell the next one and tell the one after that and then tell the one after that and just keep telling stories because we need more storytellers in this society. We need more people to say, I care about, I care about my community and I want to share my perspective.
Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, and it's it's amazing to see like the voices that are being highlighted nowadays too that with like the democratization of media, it's something I'm very passionate about. Yeah. Do you have like personal aspirations for what you would like to see film in the future? I, I think we're at this strange shifting point where it seems like commercial film is kind of taking a hit. There's a very large yeah. decline in the film industry in general. Yep. Um, a little bit of a focus is set on the independent film industry, as I said. Yeah. Um, there's increasingly more access to resources. Uh, do you have any input of what you would like to see personally? Yeah, the two. I have two things I really want to see kind of continue. And I, I love, I love Marvel. I love Marvel movies. Um, I love big blockbuster Hollywood films. They're great. But as an artist, I want to continue to see smaller independent filmmakers create art and then allow that to be spread to mass, massive groups of people. Um, so, I, so that's it. I want to continue to see independent filmmakers making their stories. And then something that also I think is really important, and I'm going to use my, my opportunity and privilege to talk about that, is to see a continued growth of different faces directing films so and, and specifically people of different ethnicities uh, different gender identities different sexual orientations telling their stories as directors because um, uh, for those of you who, who can't see my face which is everybody but Anthony I'm, a, I'm an old white guy and there's plenty of us telling our stories um, but continuing to grow the storytelling of um, of people of, of every ethnicity and every um, orientation in our community is what I'm excited about because there's enough people like me out there telling stories. I want to hear I want to hear perspectives of people from different cultures and different backgrounds. So, continuing growth of independent filmmakers and and directors of every uh, every background. Diversification of the industry. Yes, because that is what we need more than anything. Because I and and I think it's crazy when they when someone says, "Well, there's not an audience for that." What are you talking about? That's the, that's the <laughs> dumbest thing you have ever said. You know, I think. Um, I was really fortunate in that I got to I, I got to go to college with some of the amazing uh, folks who worked on Black Panther, and uh, I, I, I worked on films with Hannah, who won an Oscar for her art design for Black Panther. And Black Panther uh, is a great depiction of a story being told uh, by African American community, uh, and I say community because there are many people in that film who made it as important as they did, and and the African American community and the white community and every other community went out to see that movie because it's amazing. And so there's there's an audience for everything. And, and if someone says, well, you know, no, go away. Go go tell tell me better stories by, by more interesting people than you, you old white guy. <laughs> That's an incredibly gracious statement and response to the answer that I, or of, of the question. Yeah, um, yeah definitely. And I mean, for, for film, uh, there, there's two, there's two aspects of it. Like, Obviously, there's a identity focus and like there's a empowerment of whatever identity is putting forth the story and the yeah. narrative. But then there's also a level beyond that that's like able to have an appreciation for film as a craft yeah. where it, like you can it's not it's not even just like a whatever film like a, like a film about this specific identity. Mm -hmm. It's like a masterwork of film itself. And then in, on top of that. Yeah. Just being exemplified as like one of the great pieces of cinema and just in general. Yeah. Yeah, and I think we're going to see more and more of that, especially as we're um, going to see like more ethnic diversity and and just like mixing of identities. Yeah, like like when we talk about identity, there's there's usually like one thing that people 
hang on to like oh like, this is my identity but it's so like multifaceted like there's like so many dimensions to, yep. to identity in general so I, I think it'll be interesting going forward to see um just all like just it all to just we'll go into one big melting pot and we can yeah. all just see each other as, as human beings and resonate with each other and stuff like that well and i think you know kind of to add to that I th- one of the things that i i have realized is that i am a i am there is nothing about me that is original like everything that is me is uh been gleamed or taken or stolen from the things that have influenced me in my life right like even even my ability to speak is mimicry and learning from my parents and in moving to the pacific northwest well actually in developing a career as an actor, I realized that a slightly Kentucky twang accent gives a very specific idea about what my level of intelligence is. Um, and so I learned to mimic a more traditional, you know, American accent. Um, so, so there is nothing about me that is original. And, and we all, the minute we all realize that we are a combination of who we are uh, and our, we are a combination of, of those around us in the world that has shaped us, the sooner that we can understand that as a society, stories are far more interesting if I get another person's perspective and I can take something from that and grow as an artist. After David and I had concluded our interview, we continued talking for a short while longer. During that time, I had already shut my mic off, so you might hear my voice from the back packing up my gear. However, I left David's microphone on, and he told me a story that I found worth including in the episode. He details his encounter with a YouTube troll that was harassing his puppet show and how he, well, I'll let him tell you himself. I think, you know, it's, it's sort of funny. Like we had, we had a guy uh, who really, I don't know what we did. We made him mad somehow. And like, we are not a big channel. I think we got like seven or 800. It's like 700 or 750 right now, subscribers. Um, like we are not a big channel, but there was this one guy that got super angry at us about something. And like, we upset him like deeply and profoundly. About? I don't know. He just showed up one day and he's like, how dare you? And then just like, there was no rhyme or reason to it. And it just like became his mission. Like he, for like five or six, he, I like, he either had, or he created like five or six YouTube accounts just to thumbs down our videos. And like, and like the thing that's funny about that is that he thought he was hurting me, but that was actually helping because YouTube views that as, as. Uh, you know, engagement. So it doesn't matter that it's negative. I'm like, yeah, you keep doing it, buddy. But like, um, there was something that we had done that like struck a chord with this guy. And, and because I'm not mature, um, I created a, a puppet that was called anonymous, the troll. It's a little troll puppet. And, uh, this guy, uh, his sole purpose was to just be a jerk and, and make fun of people on the internet. And so then we just started taking those guys comments and putting them into the puppet troll's mouth and it made him even matter. And there was, like at some point, this guy, like, yeah, l- like that, just that's that's a very classy way to be so petty. <laughs> yeah, it was amazing. It was the best. Thing. But here's the thing: at some point, this guy like sent me this message that was incredibly like scary. Like uh, he's like, "I'm gonna find you and I'm gonna kick your ass," and and I was like, "Dude, what did I do to you?" Like like he found me on my private. He found me on Facebook. That, you know, that was frightening. I yeah, because one of the things we work really hard at on All Things Z, we were less so now, but at that point, we did not want at any point for us to be, like, we didn't want anybody to know who we were, not because we were scared of the backlash, but because, like, we created this fantasy world, and we wanted that to be the only reality people knew. It's immersive. Yeah, and so, um, so like, the fact that this guy tracked me down and found me on my private Facebook page um, was super, like, kind of scary, 
And, um, and then, you know, you do the reverse thing. You go to his page and you're like, oh, he's in Springfield. Awesome. Um, but yeah, well, and so the, I, I was like, dude, what is your problem? He's like, I can't believe you guys and blah, blah. And I was like, and so I was like, look, let's, you want to go get coffee? <laughs> and he's like, what? I'm like, do you want to, let's go talk. I want to talk to you because I've clearly upset you. So let's talk. And, um, and we got together and like. Uh, I still don't know what originally we had done to upset him, but he was like, man, it really hurt my feelings when you put that stupid troll and started saying stuff to me. And I was like, dude, it hurt my feelings when you started doing that kind of stuff. And like, we had this like, sort of like, yeah, it started off as like two five-year-old kids. And then it eventually became me and this guy having this conversation about him, him, like his, his marriage was falling apart. And like, he felt like he was losing control of everything in his life. And he was just mad. Stumbled upon it at the wrong time. Yeah. And like, um, and we ended up, um, I mean, we are, we are friends, <laughs> like, um, and, and yeah. And so like silly, stupid, you know, YouTube channel helped somebody. Maybe, I don't know. Like he could have been going into a dark place in his life, but there was, you know, because I was, I was at a point where I was like, eh, what's the worst? He's not going to kill me. Like if we can meet at a Starbucks, he's not going to shoot me in Starbucks. <laughs> uh, that's great. Well, thank you for the story. That's it for our show today. Special thanks to David Mort for coming on the show and sharing with us. If you'd like more information from the episode, check the show notes below. As a special memo to everyone who supported the show throughout its genesis and contributed to helping the concept be realized, I thank you so deeply. I'm really excited to create this audio experience for you all, and I hope that you'll enjoy it as much as I've enjoyed making it happen. The best way you can support our show is to share it with your friends and family. If you'd like to stay up to date with current episodes and projects, you can follow our show on all major social platforms at Uniquely Gene. I look forward to sharing with you all next week. Until then, I wish you all the best and thank you for tuning in to the Uniquely Gene podcast. I feel like a motivational speaker right now.